It's Thursday, January 5th. It's a lot tougher to say a drug is dangerous enough to be banned when your local drugstore is willing to carry it. We start here. The Food and Drug Administration makes it easier to pick up abortion medication. It's going to dramatically expand access to the drug in states where it's legal. What it means for the abortion debate and for pregnant people across the country. A House divided cannot stand Kevin McCarthy. These Republicans uh, want to weaken the speaker's gavel. What happens as we enter day three without a speaker? And she's terrified of Russian soldiers, so why is she spending time on the phone with them? Nighttime or uh, evening time? Because they don't want anyone else to hear them. We'll take you inside the Ukrainian call center dedicated to bringing in Russian defectors. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. Ever since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, abortion policy has been in the hands of the states. That's not to say no one at the national level is capable of affecting abortion rights. Congress certainly could make a law legalizing abortion, but that's not about to happen. We'll talk about the leadership mess there in a bit. There are also government agencies that can set policies at the federal level. And this week, the Food and Drug Administration made a big change to one of its policies about abortion pills. And remember, for all the talk about surgical abortions, about which clinics are open and shut, Medication abortions make up the vast majority of terminated pregnancies in this country. So this is a big deal. Let's go to ABC's Ann Flaherty, who covers the FDA. Ann, what is this change? So this is a big deal, Brad. The FDA announced this week that the abortion pill Mifepristone is safe enough that local pharmacies, these retail pharmacies like CVS, Walgreens, they can provide the drug so long as it's prescribed by a certified healthcare provider and if that pharmacy meets certain requirements. So if pharmacies jump on board, it's going to dramatically expand access to the drug in states where it's legal. It's not going to do much in states where it's not legal. Like, how does it usually work with a doctor? And what would this sort of functionally change? Like, how would that look in a doctor's office? So Mifepristone has been on the market for over 20 years, but it's been extremely tightly regulated. So in the past, you've actually had to go to a doctor and see the doctor in person. Then you would have to go back and pick up the pill in person. Last year, the FDA did away with those requirements. Mm. They said that the pill was safe enough to be uh, done through a telehealth appointment, then mailed to the person. The FDA is allowing the so-called abortion pill to be delivered by mail now. It lifts a restriction that required providers to dispense the drug in person to women. Um, but they still, you weren't able to just pick it up at your local pharmacy. Basically, that limited the abortion pill to places that could keep it in stock. So these are like abortion clinics or doctors uh, that were willing to keep it on hand and then mail it to the patient. What this does is it actually moves this drug a little bit closer to any other medication. Individual doctors, for example, might be more willing to get certified to prescribe this drug because they wouldn't have to keep it in stock themselves. They could write a prescription just as they would any other medication. So, you know. Oh, so one less hoop to go through for like your local doctor, for like your general practitioner or someone. Yeah, exactly. And and also women aren't necessarily going to have to go to an abortion clinic to get this pill. Oh. You know, I, one thing I think that is interesting is that it, it can be used in uh, miscarriage management. But if a woman goes to her, her OBGYN, her regular doctor, they would probably refer her to an ER or an abortion clinic if they felt that this medication was needed because they wouldn't be able to write the prescription themselves and then have her pick it up at a pharmacy. So this changes it, but again, only in states where this is already legal. Yeah, I was going to say, so this changes it 
for somebody who like maybe just felt like they kind of didn't have that many options around them, but it had to be in a state where it was legal for for states that have completely outlawed abortion. What you, you still can't get the abortion pill then. A big piece of this is pharmacy participation. They're going to have to raise their hands and say that they're willing to get certified mm-hmm. to distribute this drug. This isn't just going to turn up in your pharmacy tomorrow. I th- there's a process. And, and I think what this does is that it it gives pharmacies a chance to get involved in distributing this pill if they want. They're not going to be willing to distribute this drug in states where it's illegal. I don't see that happening. What I do see happening is that this new rule is going to open up the door for legal challenges. These medications are the best way that we have to offset the impact of antitrust legislation because people are going to be able to use these drugs whether abortion is legal or not. So abortion rights supporters are going to use this regulatory update to say, you know, hey, if the FDA says that a drug is safe and can be picked up at a pharmacy, much like any other drug that we we take or that we sell, mm. then isn't it up to the FDA to decide that and not state government? So what I would expect to see in, in coming days are some kind of legal challenge within the states to say these state bans are not lawful because the FDA, they, they run afoul of FDA and federal policy always trumps state policy. Yeah, we just heard from all Greens that overnight they are down with this policy. So it should go forward. But like you said, only in states where it's legal. But it reminds me, Anne, the DOJ yesterday also told the U.S. Postal Service there's no problem delivering abortion pills through the mail. So I guess I'm just wondering, like, was the Biden administration, was the president kind of pulling the levers on like the FDA rule? So they weren't. And I, one thing that I think is interesting is that um, as a reporter, I actually got the heads up that this was going to happen uh, hours before people within the administration did. That's how closely held wow. it was. And the FDA really has this, um, you know, guardrail up between themselves and the White House and HHS. And that's because they they don't want to do this um, with any sort of suggestion that they were doing it for political reasons. They say that that this is purely safety reasons. And it makes it harder than if if a Republican takes over the White House. You can say, no, there's still a guardrail up. We always have this guardrail. Right. And as we saw during the the COVID pandemic, of course, that guardrail can be tested. Um, You know, certainly people uh, can believe that this FDA has been under pressure to relax the restrictions on the abortion pill from the Biden White House. But the FDA officials are always very clear. They do what needs to be done in the name of science. Really interesting. All right. And Flaherty, thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, we need to talk about Kevin again. Time for a house call on the other side of this break. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Have you ever wondered what you would do with an extra hour in your day? I think about this all the time. I'm like, I would be so productive. I'd exercise more or I'd read a book or I'd take a nap, like restore myself. We often find ourselves yearning for these extra hours, but the real question is, what would you do if you were making yourself a priority? Well, how about therapy? It can help you discover what's important so you can make the most of your time. If you've ever benefited from therapy, you know how transformative it can be. It's not just for those who have experienced major trauma. Therapy empowers you to learn positive coping skills, set boundaries, and become the best version of yourself. If you're considering starting therapy, you should give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and tailored to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And here's the beauty of it. You can switch therapists if you're not finding the right fit. No additional charge. Take the first step. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash start here today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash start here. 
We all know there are things in life that you have to compromise on, but when it comes to your health, there should be no compromise. Don't go back to that one doctor, you know the type, like I've had this person before, that doesn't actually listen to you or who seems just in a rush to end your appointment that you spent months making. Instead, check out ZocDoc, the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. You can search by location, availability, and insurance. So, no compromises here, because with ZocDoc, you got more options than you know. We're talking about booking appointments with tens of thousands of top-rated, patient-reviewed, credible doctors and specialists. Go to ZocDoc.com slash start here and download the ZocDoc app for free, then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc, Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash start here. ZocDoc.com slash start here. It's become a meme on Capitol Hill. Democratic lawmakers leaving their offices, heading to the House floor, holding boxes of popcorn. But at this point, the scenes of chaos among Republicans are getting perhaps more boring with every sequel. A speaker has not been elected. A speaker has not been elected. A speaker has not been elected. On Tuesday, lawmakers held three different votes for House Speaker. Despite Republicans holding a majority, none of those votes yielded a leader. My message to the holdouts is this is this is wrong for the American people. Sir, you do not have the votes and it's time to withdraw. Yesterday, after more squabbling, they gathered again for votes four, five, and six. Same results. So what happens now? Let's bring in someone who's actually been in the chamber to watch this play out in person. ABC's Ben Siegel covers Congress. Ben, like, serious question, how long could this go for at this point? Brad, this is Groundhog Day in Capitol Hill. There's really no end in sight. The House voted three times yesterday for Speaker Kevin McCarthy looking to uh, secure the speaker's gavel, uh, even had the support of President Trump with a new endorsement. McCarthy actually lost votes after President Trump's endorsement. He went in the wrong direction. We did see some signs of negotiation. We saw lots of discussion on the floor between Kevin McCarthy's lieutenants and and these holdout Republicans, the never Kevin uh, McCarthy Republican crowd of these hard right members. Uh, They actually broke for dinner for a four hour recess. Uh, They returned at 8 p.m. last night, but they decided to adjourn until noon today. On this vote, the yeas are 216, the nays are 214. Uh, And that was a vote they barely won. Some of those members didn't want to leave the floor and voted against adjourning because they want to keep having these votes uh, to show how McCarthy's grip on his party uh, is not getting any stronger. I was going to say, it's like McCarthy was saying he would keep votes going all night because he thought it would shame people into voting for him. Now that he's the one being embarrassed, he was like, actually, let's go home. Um, what what options are there, Ben? Like when they come back today, what what could possibly change? It's hard to see what will change. The bottom line is that there's about 20 members right now who are opposed to McCarthy, and he basically has to convince about a dozen of them to change their votes in order for him to have a path to the speaker's gavel. Remember, he can only afford to lose four members uh, of, of the Republican Party in the vote, and he's way over that limit right now. Enough with the games. Get us all in a room, lock the doors, and, and solve the problem, because it's not fair to the American public. So they're going to keep talking behind closed doors. It's very wonky, but in broad strokes, these Republicans uh, want to weaken the Speaker's gavel. They want power uh, in Congress to return to the members. They want more freewheeling debate on the House floor. So there are a couple ways that this could go, Brad. One is that McCarthy can get more people on his side, 
One is that he eventually just steps aside and lets another Republican run uh, the caucus, though we've seen no indication from him that he's ready to do that. When you look at how difficult it is going to be to govern this closely divided House, I don't know who else would uh, come even close to doing the kind of job Kevin McCarthy. Or we can see him try to change the math on the floor and convince some members to vote present, which basically means uh, he would need fewer members to support him uh, to get the speaker's gavel. That is still very tricky for him. And then there's something floating around on Capitol Hill that's being called the nuclear option among some Republicans, which is to basically uh, play a high stakes game of chicken with the McCarthy critics. In other words, change the rules of the House so that you don't need 218 votes to win the gavel, but you need a plurality of votes. And that presents a binary choice for these critics of McCarthy. You can either vote for him so that he can win the gavel, or you don't and allow Democrat Hakeem Jeffries uh, to win the gavel. Wow. Oh, wow. Like either like whoever gets the most votes, not a majority, but the most votes. And that could very well be a Democrat. That's right. But one word of caution here, in order to change the rules to do that, they need 218 votes, which, as we've seen, they have not been able to get. And Democrats are not likely to help them out here. They're having much more fun just eating their popcorn and watching the Republican Party eat itself. Okay, so say it's not McCarthy. Like, for the the sake of argument, let's say for some reason he bows out or somebody else takes the lead or whatever. Whoever it is, whoever would take that speaker's gavel, does that upend what we thought this Congress would look like, like what its priorities would be, how it's governed, who its leaders are? I mean, what does that mean for the next year or two? Brad, whoever leads the Republican House uh, in this majority will face the same set of challenges that McCarthy is facing right now. It's a very narrow majority. Every single vote is going to be trench warfare. People have a lot of concerns. It's a little growth period that we have. But at the end of the day, all this that we go through will make us stronger in the long run. He has to get all a very fractured and very divided group of uh, 222 Republicans to move the ball forward together on big issues. And as we've seen, this is supposed to be the easy part, Brad. They can't even pick who's supposed to lead them. And there are really important issues facing the federal government going forward. The federal government's going to hit its borrowing limit perhaps sometime in in the spring or summer, and that's something that Congress routinely raises, Democrats and Republicans. But it's something that these far-right Republicans hate. They don't want the government uh, to rack up more more debt on what they consider to be its credit card. So that is always a fight. And in some ways, what we're seeing now is the beginning of that fight. And that's going to be a challenge for whoever the speaker is, whether it's Kevin McCarthy or really any other Republican on the House floor. There's going to be a challenge. Like Democrats have always said this would be a catastrophe. Republican, like moderate Republicans have said this would be a catastrophe, and there was always sort of one of them to kind of guide the party to avert like an economic crisis. You're saying we're seeing in this vote right now, like th- those guardrails might already be off. That's right. This is this is basically a, a teaser for what's to come. Uh, once they figure this out, however long it takes, that is by no means the end of, of what will be a very contentious and animated Republican majority that will be at war with itself for much of the next two years. All right. Ben Siegel covering Congress. We'll let him get back to, you know, chasing these lawmakers around, asking them which way they're going to vote, who they'll eventually vote for. Uh, Thanks a lot, Ben. Thank you. In the new year, the biggest story in the war in Ukraine is amid all these Russian airstrikes, Ukraine successfully launched an airstrike of its own, taking out a Russian-occupied building in the eastern part of the country. Kiev saying around 400 were killed, Moscow putting the number at 63 and claiming it was U.S.-made long-range HIMAR rockets doing the damage. 
And in this building was a ton of artillery, which of course exploded, and also members of the Russian military. Some Russians have publicly questioned why these young men were sleeping above what are basically explosives. And in recent weeks, some of these battles have not just been over land, they're for the hearts and minds of Russian soldiers. In fact, increasingly, Ukrainian officials say they are hearing from Russians who want to defect, to put down their weapons and come to Ukraine. So many, they say, that they've set up a hotline to help convince them. ABC's foreign correspondent Inez de la Quatara went to Ukraine to meet the people running these, what are basically call centers. She joins us now. Inez, when I first heard about this, I was like, oh, this must be Ukraine trying to sort of sell this narrative that they're winning the war. But it does sound like this is something that is is really happening, huh? Yeah, Brett. So there's this hotline that's been set up for Russians who want to defect. It's known as the I Want to Live Project. And we actually went to meet with the people who run this hotline. We spoke with both the project spokesperson and with one of its operators. And they told us that more than a million Russians have found some way to contact them, whether it's by calling, they can also text, they can message them on the popular Telegram app, or they can send uh, increased messages. Um, they can also visit the website of this hotline and send in messages that way. And so all the calls go through the computer and then you talk to them okay, through okay. your headphones. These guys tell us they've been getting all sorts of calls. So sometimes it's it's uh, soldiers who are already in Ukraine who want to defect. Uh, sometimes it's uh, people who want to avoid going to war altogether. Sometimes it's uh, the families of these soldiers. Uh, somebody uh, is scared. Somebody is uh, worried. Somebody is uh, call uh, for fun. Uh, many different questions. But they do say the number of calls has increased recently, that the numbers actually skyrocketed after Russian President Putin announced the announced mobilization in Russia and that they're getting about 200 to 300 calls a day now. They say that's been the case since September. And they say that altogether more than 4,000 people have submitted requests to, to surrender. But we actually, we so 4,000 people have submitted requests to surrender. We don't know how many have actually surrendered. What are these calls like? Like what... what? Can you walk us through what happens when somebody calls the Ukrainians saying, I want to come over? I will say that they're quite secretive. There's only so much that they would tell us about how the procedure works. But uh, basically, these people call in, an operator picks up the phone, and we Mm. met with one of the operators uh, who went by the name of Oksana. She, uh, you know, had changed her name for security reasons. So, Oksana, can you tell us about the type of work you do here? She told us now it was a routine job for her, but that the first hundred calls were tough for her because she loves Ukraine and she, you know, hated speaking to the people who were reaching out. She hated the the Russians that were calling in. So now she's gotten used to it. Now it's routine for her. What time of the day do you receive the most calls? Zero, uh, it's uh, nighttime or uh, evening time. Because they don't want anyone else to hear them. Yeah. We were actually able to review some of the calls that came in. In one case, it was a call that was coming in from a woman in occupied Crimea. And she was actually a mother who was worried about her son, who had just been summoned by the Russian army. They're they're crying. They're they're worried about what's going to happen to them. So do you work at night then? You stay here late at night? Yeah. Yeah. Continue to speaking. 
continue to speak to them. People will call the numbers that are listed. Then the operators will record people's personal information. Then they pass it on to the relevant state bodies and special military units. And then the operator gives them instructions and they uh, tell them where to go and what to do upon arrival. They typically get a time and place where they have to go to. And then they actually have to establish visual contact with a drone. And the drone will kind of guide them and, and show them the safe passage route. Wait, um, literally follow this drone over to the Ukrainian military and like, we'll get you there safely? That's what we understand, yeah, that they will typically wow. get a time and place where they have to show up to the Ukrainian armed forces positions. And then they establish contact, visual contact with a drone, which will show the safe passage route. Why is your job so important? Uh, this uh, project is so important because uh, it uh, brings uh, closer our victory. What happens to these people? Like if they're soldiers, we've heard about atrocities, we've heard about like terrible things happening. What what happens when, when these Russian soldiers come over? What's the plan for them? The Russians who follow the surrender rules are considered prisoners of war. Um, Ukrainian officials say that, you know, that status guarantees they are treated according to the Geneva Conventions and they can receive, you know, the necessary medical treatment, food. They can also call their relatives. Um, interesting to note that high-level military personnel are treated as a priority because they could possess, you know, valuable intelligence and that um, Ukrainian officials are actually uh, planning for a separate program in uh, Ukraine for, you know, kind of top officers um, who who might want to uh, surrender. So were you surprised by the amount of people who were calling in? No, uh, it was uh, logical because we knew that uh, uh, many people uh, don't want to go to front line. And we also know, according to the head of the Ukrainian uh, Center for Security and Cooperation, Sergei Kuzan, who spoke to my colleague Yulia Drodz, um, he said that each case is evaluated differently, that they take into account the individual's age, their origin, and their military experience, um, and that they also look at where people are surrendering from, what region they, they, they're coming from. Um, but I will say, you know, that there's a lot of secrecy around this. There's a lot of details that they wouldn't share with us. Um, this is kind of what we've pieced together from talking to, to different Ukrainian officials. You know, they, they don't tell us what happens next, how many people have actually surrendered. Yeah, and it just becomes so apparent how, how truly worried these soldiers are, their families are when you hear these actual calls. All right, Inez de Liquitara, great reporting from you and from Yulia Drozd. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, Shakespeare wrote it in his script, go wisely and slow. They stumble that run fast. So how young is too young for actors? One last thing is next. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And one last thing. It's the most famous love story on Earth. And yet, when you ask two of the actors who have told that story, it was no fairy tale. What satisfaction canst thou have tonight? The exchange of thy love's faithful vow for mine. 
Just ahead of the new year, Leonard Whiting and Olivia Hussey, who played Romeo and Juliet in the iconic 1968 film, sued the movie studio who made it, accusing Paramount in a complaint of sexual harassment and child abuse. Remember, part of what made this film so compelling is that it used teenagers to play teenagers. Hussey was 16 years old at the time, Whiting was 17, and during this movie, they lie in bed together naked. You see the actor's bare backside, you briefly see the actress's exposed chest. Well, their lawsuit now claims that up until the day of that shoot, they were told they'd be filming in skin-tone underwear, undergarments. There would be no nudity, but during their final preparations, they allege, director Franco Zeffirelli told them they had to be naked or, quote, the film will fail. And I absolutely have had that, going, oh my goodness, actually... I've given more of my nakedness than I really wanted to, but there's nothing I can do. And I'm going, yes, there is. Ida O'Brien is a professional intimacy coordinator. She basically consults with actors and directors on how to shoot sex scenes, like a choreographer for dance or a stunt coordinator. Back in 1968, though, there weren't many Ida O'Briens on set. And then the process allows for agreement and consent, and that's of touch nudity and simulated sexual content, and then putting in place rehearsals and clear choreography of this body dance that is the intimate scene, so that by the time you get to set, everybody knows what's happening. She says nearly every actor she speaks to has a story where years after a shoot, they wished they had an ally on set. And these are adults we're talking about. Think what it's like for child actors. Something that seems confusing or even exhilarating at the time can later be seen as real trauma. Do you think think the scene is improved by it being played in the nude? Yes. Because it doesn't look dirty, it looks... And even though Hussey defended the nude scene as late as 2018, when the director was still alive, she now says she was trying to justify something she was never proud of. Again, that feeling of, well, this is part of the job, you know, and again, that other statement that you had before the, the intimacy guidelines being in place, you're an actor, you should be brave. And, and if you're an actor, you know that nudity and simulated sexual content is part of your job, so you shut up, put up, and just get on with it. A key thing to know about the timing here was that the actors filed this suit just in the nick of time. In California, statutes of limitations on sexual abuse have been suspended for three years, but they went back into effect with the new year. Paramount has not yet commented to ABC News. And while Ida described how much more mainstream intimacy coordinators have become in recent years, she recounted the words of an established actress who said every time she filmed an intimate scene, it cost her something. And there was a gasp from the audience because someone of that standing in the industry to stay to say that every single time she's done an intimate scene it has cost her Ida now knows many actors who have refrained from auditioning for roles taking themselves out of the running maybe even out of the profession for fear of being taken advantage of again despite Romeo and Juliet still being shown in classrooms to this day these stars never found much acting success later The hope in Hollywood now is that a simple shoot should not cost actors as much. In the meantime, these plaintiffs are seeking more than half a billion dollars. That's got to be one of the more interesting jobs in Hollywood, right? Although the gig I've always been obsessed with is Foley artists. You know, like the sound effect people, you find the right shoes to clomp in and the right squeaky hinge to creak your door with. Yeah, I'm a nerd, but I'm in podcasting, so it's okay. I'm going to convince myself. I'm Brad Milkey. I'm off tomorrow, but you will have Devin Dwyer in your corner. I'll see you next week. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.